Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features our first ever academic, Professor Roger Scully, Professor of Political Science at Cardiff University. Those of you who follow the academic side of politics will have be familiar with Roger. He won a PSA award last year. He regularly pops up as a pundit on TV and radio and he's absolutely fascinating. He's got a new book out that we discuss, amongst other things. It's called The End of British Party Politics. It's out next month, April 2018, published by Biteback. And it's, uh, it, it contributes a large amount uh, to the conversation ideas of national identity within the United Kingdom, the idea that a UK-wide British politics is being hollowed out and whether that's a desirable thing, how can it be reversed? We talk about global... I mean, the conversation, I can't big this up enough, goes down various avenues, all of which are absolutely fascinating. We talk about the likely pressures on politics in the next 5, 10, 20 years. And Roger as with a lot of academics, has a very different perspective on politi politics to politicians or advisors or journalists. He's taken a, a longer view, a more scientific approach to politics, and as a result, you just get a completely different interview, and he's brilliant. I've met him briefly before and was so impressed by him, and it was just uh, a pleasure to have him here. You can follow him on Twitter, at Roger underscore Scully. That's S-C-U. Double L Y. You can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know where you listen. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford. And as I've mentioned already, I'm going on tour in just a few weeks. I come to Glasgow on the 25th of March, then go to Edinburgh on the 27th of March, then I'm in Bristol on the 29th of March, and then at the London Soho Theatre for five nights from the 3rd to the 7th of April, then Banbury on the 12th of April, Harpenden on the 19th of April, Sale on the 2nd of May, Tiverton on the 4th of May, Loughborough on the 18th of May, Canterbury on the 23rd of May, Cheltenham on the 28th of May, Chippenham on the 2nd of June and Stockton on the 8th of June. So if you're in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Bristol, Banbury, Harpenden, or any of those other wonderful places, uh, then do come and see me. You can get tickets for all those shows on my website, mattford.com slash live. I shall leave you in the capable hands of Professor Roger Scully. Professor Scully, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, can I, how should I address you? Uh, Roger. <laughs> People <laughs> normally call me that. That's fine. Thank you. Uh, I first um, noticed you at the PSA Awards last year. I was I, I was there, and uh, you won. Was it Political Communicator of the Year? I did. Was yes. the award, uh, and your speech was excellent. And it made me think I should get some academics on this show. So, in a way, you're what has inspired this. Um, yeah. Uh, this direction um, and the work you do is fascinating particularly it's so relevant particularly now and, and maybe not even just because of Brexit just the last three or four years in British politics that have really centred around national identity Scottish independence and then Brexit and then perhaps uh, an emphasis on certainly the union in Scottish politics at the last general election one of the phrases that you use early in your book is a genuinely British democratic politics is being hollowed out mm. is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, if you're a supporter of Scottish independence, I guess you'd say not. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, I would imagine probably the majority of the people who might read this book would be people who would probably support the idea of UK continuing as a single entity. And what I'm talking about in the book is what seems to be a development over recent elections and in the ways that parties run themselves of party politics, electoral politics in the UK, fragmenting between the different constituent nations. Now... I suppose for Northern Ireland, to a large extent, this is nothing new. Northern yeah. Ireland has long been place apart electorally. But we've seen Scotland move to become a much more distinct electoral space and, and you know, political space in the last few years. And we even saw some very interesting developments in Wales at the last general election. And what I end up saying, as you would have read uh, in the conclusion of the book, 
is, well, you know, if this continues, if we, if we no longer have a single political conversation across the UK, a single set of options you know, from which to choose, then you know, we don't really have any sort of united, healthy, functioning democracy. And that cannot be anything but an unhealthy thing for the future of the UK as a continuing entity. It's fascinating the different directions in which the, the four constituent nations are pulling in because it's not as if it's necessarily a Celtic rebellion against an English democratic process. Wales, actually, perhaps surprisingly to a lot of people, is far closely aligned with England than it is with Scotland in terms of its attitude towards its own independence. Why do you think that is? Well, Wales, of course, has been politically uh, linked to England for a very long time, since the 16th century, uh, under King Henry VIII. Wales was formally incorporated into the Kingdom of England. You know, subsequently, um, people started to call the acts that formally put Wales into the Kingdom of England as acts of union. But these were very, very different things from the parliamentary acts in both the then English and Scottish Parliament that brought Scotland into what became the, uh, Great Britain. Um, yes, Scotland had a separate parliament and government that negotiated an agreement with England, albeit under some duress. So the nature of the union for Scotland has always been very different. And we see some of those differences continuing right on to the present day. You know, a completely different legal system, a different educational system. And some of the effect of those long-term differences can be felt today in the sort of political conversations that we have, which I think are very different in Scotland from what they are in Wales, albeit I think you know, even the ones in Wales have moved in a, in a quite interesting way uh, and more distinct from England than they used to be. It, I suppose it's just that the presumption from the outside is that, you know, if, if you think of cultural events, you know, take, for instance, the Six Nations tournament that's going on at the moment. I'm not a big fan of rugby, but Celtic nations will root against England regardless of which one of them is playing. You know, there is a there is a sense of the, the, the UK identity is basically, you know, the, the English have the moral lower ground. It's OK to, you know, for the banter, it's all fine, it is, 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 the, is the enemy. But actually, in a way, in a way with Wales, it just, it, I find it surprising that whilst culturally there's a rivalry with England, politically it's not as deep as it, as it is with Scotland. Yeah, I mean, Wales, you know, for many hundreds of years was essentially governed as part of England. Any sense of distinctiveness it has was much more linguistic and cultural, at times also religious, in terms of differences within Protestantism. Um, you know, but there was very little sort of governmental or official institutional recognition of Welsh distinctiveness. Scotland was governed in a much more distinct way. Um, and, you know, those long-term differences, I think, were very much part of the devolution settlements that were set up in 1999 with the establishment of the Welsh Assembly and Scottish Parliament as you know, very different institutions mm. and can be felt in the very different ways in which the political discussions and developments have gone on in the two nations since then. And I think, actually, that's also been quite convenient, quite um, suitable for many people in Whitehall and Westminster. I think you know they quite like actually being able to deal with the d different parts of the union bilaterally and as quite distinct relationships, rather than have to be thinking about the UK as a whole. Um, I mean, one of the things I mentioned very briefly in the book is that the Welsh First Minister Carwin Jones has been talking for some years now about trying to get a fundamental reshaping of the UK constitution. He's been calling for a constitutional convention for major changes in the ways in which the devolved parliaments um, have their powers, but also their role in the governing of the UK as a whole. Until quite recently, it seemed as if he was a voice crying out of the wilderness and almost nobody was listening to him. Um, even now, I have to say, it's very difficult to get a hearing for those sorts of arguments in Whitehall and Westminster. You know, there was very little appetite for sort of rethinking the UK as a whole. Yeah. I think the the attitude in Whitehall has been you know, to patch up bits of the union, you know, whichever one of the bilateral relationships is under strain, but to avoid as much as possible thinking systematically about what this means for the UK as an entire ongoing functioning entity. Is that born primarily of a lack of political will to have that conversation? perhaps from a, a Conservative administration that wouldn't want to accept that there are effectively deep divisions on a national level? I think there's a few things. 
in the immediate term, I think you know, Brexit makes it very difficult. Brexit yeah. is consuming so much bandwidth and political energy in Whitehall and Westminster. There's very little room to think of anything else. I think, secondly, there is a longer-term mindset to um, you know, that kind of finds it difficult, as you suggested, to think about how we might restructure um, the UK and very little appetite for doing so. Um, but I think there's, a, you know, this is one of the many ways in which long, the long-term historical development of the UK still has a relevance today. Um, the UK as we know it um, is, by all international standards, a really bizarre, <laughs> odd state. <laughs> um, and it's developed essentially by growing outwards from the English core, mm. but in very different ways. So you know, Wales was incorporated through military conquest and subsequent legal incorporation into England. Scotland was incorporated through you know, a largely peaceful treaty and union between two distinct sovereign states. Ireland was incorporated in a different way again, and then, of course, most of Ireland left just over 100 years later. Um, so in many respects, the UK has been sort of, you know, England with these other little bits um, patched on, but patched on in, in very distinct and different ways. And try to think... You know, holistically about how you might restructure the UK as a whole requires you to think about all the various illogicalities and imbalances and irrationalities about the UK as it is now and then try and think of a way to resolve them. And politicians always have, or thus far, have always had more urgent problems to deal with mm. than sort of you know, rebuilding the ship while it's out on the high seas. Indeed. I mean, it's, it's interesting that it all effectively stems from, as you say, that English core... But the sense of an English identity is probably less clear than of all the four constituents. You think of the Welsh identity, the Scottish identity, the English identity, for many, conflated with Britishness. But nevertheless, it's a challenge, isn't it? Perhaps particularly to progressive politicians at the moment, is the whole debate about refreshing the centre. Yeah. And a lot of Labour MPs, the moderate wing of the party, say actually the Labour Party needs to have a view of what Englishness is. Yeah. I always sense with people across the parties that English nationalism is something that they try and avoid, and there's never really been an appetite, perhaps a little under the Blair years, but but not a great deal since, to have a progressive view of what the English national identity is. Um, I wonder if you agree with that, and, and either way, what is Englishness? Yeah. I think you use a really important word at the beginning of that question, conflation. Yeah. Um, the way in which sort of Englishness and Britishness have rather been merged into each other. Um, I think because of this way that Britain develops a growing outwards from the English core, I mean, a con conflation of you know, the national identity with British identity has never really been possible for the Scots yeah. or the Irish or the Welsh. But for the English, it, it has been. We have seen in at least some of the work on public attitudes being done in the last 10, 15 years, some signs of an emergence of a more distinct English identity. Um, and I think we see that to some degree in popular culture as well. You know, the, flat, the Cross of St George is yes. seen far more visibly if you go and look at pictures, say, of you know, England's World Cup win in 1966, it's overwhelmingly the Union Jack that's flown there. Even Euro 96 yeah. is probably predominantly Union Jacks. Uh, it was starting to change yeah. then. And, and I think you know, we, we see the Cross of St George flag used, used much more. And I think you, you're, you're quite right to say that this is something that makes politicians on the left particularly nervous. Um, and that's not just, uh, say, nervous about English identity. I think there's a general... Um, neuroticism, you might say, if you've been critical, about notions of nation, mm. what nationalism might mean, um, and a fear that talking about any sort of ideas of nation means pandering to you know, the extreme right. Mm. Um, and so I think you know, the Labour Party have been very loath, with a few exceptions, to talk about England and Englishness. The problem with that, of course, is that it rather leaves then the field open to people on the, on the political right. And Conservatives, I think also UKIP, very effectively over the last 10 years or so, have, have used some of this. I mean, UKIP, despite their waiving of the Union Jack, actually, their, their support, certainly in England, overwhelmingly has been drawn from people whose national identity is predominantly English yeah. rather than British. Um, people, indeed, who've been very unhappy with both of England's unions, the UK <laughs> yes. and the European yeah. Union. They've had a chance to vote their way out of one of them, yeah. um, but are also often pretty disgruntled, have a sense that you know, the Celts are maybe sort of getting away with it. They have you know, extra privileges, maybe extra money. They get these devolved governments and yeah. parliaments, and you know, why don't we get any of that? 
Um, and you know, bubbling beneath the surface, at times not that far beneath the surface in the last decade, has been significant discontent within England by many people about the ways in which England and Englishness to them seems to be rather neglected and pushed aside and not talked about by politicians. And I think it's it's always dangerous, if you know, even if for understandable reasons, politicians are seen to be not talking about, seem to be avoiding issues that people care about a great deal. It felt like for a while, there's always obviously been a very strong British patriotism and English, Scottish, Wales and uh, Irish and Northern Irish, but it actually felt for a while, perhaps in the Blair years where Scotland, England and Wales were all getting a government that they'd voted for, that we were sort of moving beyond issues of nationhood in a way, as a United Kingdom, that, that, that those... Well, firstly, they hadn't come to the head in the way that they had uh, in Scotland and Wales, but there was, a, there was an acceptance from that regime because of devolution that, that something needed to be done. And symbolic things like giving the stone of destiny back and things like that are important to people, and rightly so. But it did feel that as a country, we weren't obsessing about identity in the same way that we are now. What has caused, do you think, the, the rise in Scottish nationalism? As far as we've seen it, Welsh nationalism, and, and, and I mean, obviously... we. Britain's relationship with Europe and particularly an obsession of the Tory party has always been there. But it seems like the last two, three years, four years specifically, these things have really come to a head. Is it is it purely economic circumstances that have driven this? I think elements of this are different in in the different constituent nations of also of, of Britain. Um, so I think you know, the Scottish conversation is very different from the Welsh one and different yeah. from the English one in turn. But I think one possible common theme is that in the last 10 or so years, um, an awful lot of people, normal, traditional, mainstream ways of doing politics and maybe ways of doing economics, haven't felt like they're really working for them. You know, the average person in the UK is no better off and he's probably worse off than they were a decade ago. Yeah. Um, you know, the aftermath of the economic crash, um, other developments in the economy, and particularly you know, the concentration of economic benefits at the very sort of top of of the 1%, has meant that an awful lot of people are struggling. It's becoming increasingly difficult for normal people in much of the UK, for instance, to aspire to owning a house and things like that. And when normal conventional ways of politics don't deliver the goods for people, when mainstream conventional politicians, including maybe ones like Tony Blair that lots of people at one time had quite a lot of faith in, seem to let them down, then people are more willing to look at alternatives or different ways of thinking about politics, different ways of um, maybe different new political movements or new political ideas and maybe even willing to think about radical restructuring, whether that might be Scottish independence, whether that might be voting to leave the European Union or whether that might be voting for far-right parties or parties set up by comedians, have we seen in Italy (laughs) recently... (laughs) or by, you know, narcissistic, yeah. egotistical reality TV stars, yeah. as we've seen in the United States. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, who could have thought even 10 years ago that Bernie Sanders, an avowed socialist, would come within a whisker of being right. the Democratic nominee for president, or that Donald Trump, a man apparently so patently unfit for holding even the office of local dog catcher (laughs) could be elected president of the United States. Um, Now, okay, there are maybe idiosyncratic elements to some of these individual things, just as there were to Brexit or whatever. But the, the common feature, I think, is mainstream politics and ways of doing government failing people, people feeling they're being let down and being more willing to look for different answers, whether that might be different political parties, different political candidates, or even thinking about things like you know, restructuring the state, redrawing the boundaries of the political yeah. community. Is it inevitable, then, that at times of difficulty or crisis, that the default rebellion comes to a sense of nationhood? No, but I think there can be, and you know, there are various pretty unhappy historical examples of this, when times are really tough, some politicians will try to persuade people that we have a nice simple answer to your problems and the problem is them. People, yeah. um, and of course one of the easiest ways to unite a group of people is to unite them against somebody else, against some sort of common enemy. 
Um, and numerous examples of that we could take from the trivial to the to the extremely serious. I mean, at the more trivial level, Sir Alex Ferguson, during his extremely successful football managerial career, was famous, for instance, for uniting his team by persuading them that everyone was against them. Yes. Um, and you know, we had to go out and show all those bastards who have been out to get us for all these years yeah. and who are always trying to do us down and you know yeah. you, you cohere the group you you bring people together by persuading them that they you know, that they have some threat in a, in a somewhat more benign way you could say this is uh what was very evident during perhaps you know the high point of britishness during and the years after mm. the second world war yeah you know, there'd been a very strong and indeed vile common enemy um, and that drew a lot of people together into a common identity and common support for the British state um, in fighting this enemy. Um, you know, it, in more recent times, of course, you know, we haven't had any sort of you know, common enemy like that. Um, but you know, some people have argued and others have been persuaded that, for instance, the European Union is in some ways a sort of a, a rather hostile force, yeah. um, you know, Stopping the UK being a self-governing nation, and you know, m- many people, I suppose, you know, responding perhaps partly to normal politics not working for them, being persuaded that you know, a vote to leave the European Union could give them back greater control over how their country is governed, and therefore, you know, opt to vote for leaving the European Union. What is it about national identity that is so powerful? Is it just that it gives people meaning? in lieu of anything else, that ultimately it's the one thing that they can definitely fall back on because they are from here. They might not have any family or friends, but they are definitely English or British or whatever it is. Mm. Or is it something else? I mean, are you familiar with any studies that have been done in this area? Why is it that the nation is so inspirational to people? Well, there is a huge academic literature on the study of nationalism, probably the most famous book in all of that by... An author called Benedict Anderson referred to nations as imagined communities, mm. um, and different nations around the world you know, construct a sense of us. Who us is construct a certain sense. I mean, I say construct. That's not you know, doesn't mean it's completely fictional, but drawing perhaps selectively on the historical past and things that are mem- remembered, and some things which are forgotten a sense of our history you know, who we are where we have come from what our origins are um, that helps us interpret the present and helps us look to the future with the you impossible know, um, paths or political trajectories and so you could see you know, the brexit movement as a part of that is a certain particular understanding of britain's past um, a view that maybe it went wrong in term, in you know, joining with the other countries and what's now the european union that perhaps thereby sacrificed some of its other historical ties with other countries, including English-speaking nations around the world, that it you know, maybe gave up too much sovereignty, um, and that by leaving you can look to restructure uh, the country, uh, reshape its political destiny, set it on a new trajectory. And you know, all nations around the world, um, both those which have their own states and those like the Kurds which don't, you know, create some sort of sense, some sort of narratives about what sort of people we are, where we've come yeah. from, how we've been treated, who our enemies are, who our friends are, maybe, um, and what might be the sort of you know, nationhood or national path that we're seeking to follow. Um, and you know, there's nothing particularly unusual about that. But you, I mean, you're right. Nationalism is is very powerful. I think you know, people talk about various isms: communism, socialism, liberalism. But I think it would be indisputable that the most powerful ism in the last 300 years of human existence has been nationalism. Would it be desirable, do you think, in general, to move away from it, to, to go beyond the concept of the nation-state? In terms of governance, obviously you have to elect a local council. There has to be a territory of some sort for you to have politicians you can hold to account uh, for, the, for the governance of that area. But as a human race, would we not be better served to move beyond ideas of simply defining ourselves by our nation? Nice, simple question. Um, <laughs> I think I think we saw, for instance, most obviously uh, during World War Two, how the idea of an absolute identification with the nation yeah. um, and, a, you know, and a particular leader of a nation can lead to you know, some of the worst consequences that humanity has ever seen. 
Well, it's not so easy to escape nationalism. Um, I mean, it's it's everywhere. Just go look at any map of the world. Pretty much all of them have you know these lines that are drawn on the map that yeah. identify the states. Um, it's actually quite difficult to look at a map of the world without having those lines on them. And I think you know, we have to have boundaries drawn somewhere. We have to have some sort of identifications of, you know, we are part of some community and not, and not of others. What I think is important as human beings is to try and arrive at a position where it's not that we abolish um, completely boundaries or communities or you know, nations or anything like that, but we don't have a sort of absolute identification with one particular community and then and so it's most importantly, identification with one community against its opponents. Mm-hmm. Where we see, I suppose, most starkly in the UK today is in Northern Ireland, where you have a you know, very deep, very long-standing community divide between you know the nationalist Irish Catholics and the British Protestant Unionists. And I think most people would say that's not a particularly healthy model that you know, the rest of the UK would want to follow. I mean, the European Union in the minds of at least some of its founding fathers, they were overwhelmingly men, um, was, I think, not so much about seeking to abolish nationalism as to trying to find ways in which the European nations could live together with some of the edge of nationalism taken off, um, you know, find ways of accommodating these distinct nation-states and their identifications with you know, their nations, their histories, their cultures, yet also be able to cooperate. Um, and in, in in that broadest sense, I think in particular in, in rebuilding the French-German relationship, the project of the European Union, I think, has been overwhelmingly successful. I looked up much closer. There's a great deal about the European Union that is that is pretty unlovely. My first two books were written about the European Union. And I think if you've ever studied the EU, you closely, you know there's plenty about it that's that's far from lovely. Yeah. Um, but you know whatever might be wrong with it in terms of you know too many committees, too much bureaucracy, waste in various places, that's still a hell of a lot better than fighting wars. Yes. Yeah. Well, in some people's opinion, perhaps, uh, perhaps mm. not in others. Uh, sadly, in the times in which we live, mm. um, there are different types of nationalism, aren't there? Or are there? Do you make a distinction between what people would call the civic nationalism of the SNP and the nationalism we see elsewhere? Well, I don't think that there's any sort of you know, nationalism of any particular nation is inherently better than others. But given that we live in a world where you know we do have national borders, boundaries, we have states, then you know unless we do manage to at some point as a as a human race transit to some future where these things don't exist, then we have to find ways of developing relatively healthy national projects and national understandings, nationalisms, if you want to call them that. You know, there's plenty I could criticise the S&P about over recent years, but what I think has been encouraging about the way in which they have sought to um, pursue independence is that it has not been done through development of sort of open anti-English hostility, nor has it been done through a sort of more generalised xenophobia. Indeed, the SNP have been one of the very few major political parties who have been openly pro-migration and immigration in recent years. Um, you know, this, this is not a party which has been pursuing Scottish independence through a sort of, you know, shut out all the foreigners and uh, distinguish Scottishness from all these nasty um, people who aren't Scottish. Um, they have talked about um, yeah, a much more inclusive understanding of Scottishness, which includes people whose family histories and backgrounds, maybe even own birthplaces, are not in Scotland. Uh, the SNP was, I believe, I'm doing this from memory, but I believe the SNP were the first party in Scottish Parliament to elect a black and minority ethnic MSP. Um, and I believe, believe again, I'm doing this from memory, um, but also the first party to appoint a black and minority ethnic minister in the Scottish government. So, you know, this is not a sort of, you know, white supremacist type of no. Scottishness, which would would be possible to imagine some people developing, but that's not what has been, um, you know, in, in terms of the mainstream of the Scottish independence movement. It has actually been a movement which has seen, at least, its political 
centre of gravity is being left as centre and which has tried to define, for the most part, Scottishness in quite an open and inclusive way and has remained, as I said, um, very much you know, pro-immigration and pro uh, a multicultural understanding of what Scottishness is and could be in the future. They certainly have a progressive reputation now. Historically, they've, they've been in different places over the years and, uh, admittedly, the, the SNP of... 2018 is not the SNP of the late 30s and, and early 40s, but it's true that the SNP has been on a journey, hasn't it? It was pro Thatcher in 79. Elements of it were, 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 were at some point, you know, started with Germany for, for a while over, uh, over Britain in the Second World War. Well, um, I, I think that's a little bit unfair to the SNP. I mean, there were certainly some members of both the SNP and Plaid Cymru who advocated neutrality in World War II. I'm, I'm not aware of any specific individuals were actively pro-Hitler. Uh, I mean, in 1979, when it came to the vote of confidence on the, by then, desperately tired and divided Labour government, Plaid Cymru decided in the end they did a deal with Labour, they got some um, specific things and decided to vote for Labour. The SNP felt so let down by how the Labour government had handled the devolution issue, they decided to vote um in favour of the no-confidence motion, which is a perfectly reasonable thing for an opposition party to do. Um, of course, you know, the SNP themselves then suffered a very severe political price for that over the next few years, and by 1983 election, their vote share was down to barely 10%. So, you know, the SNP did what they thought, I guess, was the right thing at the time, but they themselves paid a, a pretty heavy political price for doing so. You mentioned Plaid there, and uh, Leanne Wood has tried perhaps in a small way, to to emulate the success of Nicola Sturgeon and, and hasn't managed to. Nicola Sturgeon has been at Plaid conferences and said, I want to visit, you know, the, an in, the first independent Wales and the first independent first minister in the Anwood. At the moment, the desire isn't there, despite, you know, Plaid doing their best to try and ignite it. Do you think we, we will see, at some point in our lifetimes, a, a Welsh independence movement of the sort we've seen in Scotland? I think it's unlikely in the short term. Um, I mean, the most likely thing that would stimulate such a movement, I think, would be if Scotland were to vote for independence. Mm. Because I think you know, if Scotland were to vote to leave the UK and be set on that trajectory and 18 months, two years later, to actually leave the UK, it changes all sorts of conversations. Um, it would change fundamentally the very nature of what remains within the UK. I mean, at the moment, you can still sort of believe in the UK as a multinational entity. If Scotland leaves, it's very much England and two little bits. Yeah. And I think if Scotland, Scotland were to go independent, I think that fairly immediately poses quite an existential crisis for Northern Ireland unionists. What is it they still want to be in union with? Yeah. Because you know their identification is very much British, it's not English. Yeah, yeah. And I think there would be a new conversation started in Wales. That would not necessarily lead to Welsh independence, but I think it would begin a more serious consideration of it. As it is, I mean, we've seen over multiple studies over the last two decades and more, no signs of any upward trajectory in support for Welsh independence. Depending on how you ask the question, support for Welsh independence tends to vary from about 5 to 20%. It's very much a minority taste. Um, the clear majority opinion in Wales at present is for some degree of self-government, but within the UK. It is not for no devolution at all, and it's not for full national independence. It's for autonomy within the UK. Plaid, um, well, it's often forgotten, the first devolved elections in 1999, Plaid actually had a higher share of the vote in Wales than the SNP did in Scotland. Um, that's almost unimaginable now. Now, partly that is about the SNP being outstandingly successful, not least because the SNP have been led by a team of extraordinarily talented politicians in um, Alex Salmond and Nicholas Sturgeon. And I think the third man who is often forgotten but shouldn't Swinney. be, John Swinney, um, who's, who's been an extremely effective minister and wasn't actually, in electoral terms, a very effective leader, but did quite a lot of important internal reforms to the party during his brief period of leadership. Plaid Cymru, after a very good first devolved election, um, then basically have drifted a great deal. And I think that's partly because Plaid have faced more effective opponents in Wales than the SNP have in Scotland. Welsh Labour have managed the politics of devolution much more you know, cleverly than yeah. Scottish Labour ever did. But it's also 
about what Plaid have done. And yeah, about a year after the first of all election, um, David Weekly, their popular and effective Plaid leader, was to some degree pressured into standing down. His successor, Yenwin Jones, sort of like the Plaid version of Don Swinney, a very effective politician in many respects, but almost wholly lacking in voter appeal. Yeah. But whereas Swinney basically left the SNP leadership fairly swiftly, Yanwin Jones was in place for something like 11 and a half years. Um, he applied, allowed a figure who was without voter appeal to make, remain in his position for a significant period of time. And therefore, unsurprisingly, they drifted electorally for more than a decade. And Leanne Wood took over the party in 2012. She took over a party that had been on a long downward trajectory. Um, she's had some success in moving that forward, implied at the last general election, increased the number of MPs back up to their joint highest level ever. They moved back into second place at the last Assembly election in 2016. They won two of the four Welsh Police and Crime Commissioner elections in 2016 as well. They've had some success, but it's only been partial. Um, and I said, Plaid's fate over the last decade and a half, that's partly about what they've done, but it's also partly about what their opponents have done, and particularly Welsh Labour being much more effective than Scottish Labour have been. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. With, this, with the Scottish independence, I read um, John Curtis's last social attitude survey report was convinced that Scottish independence was not only inevitable but imminent um, is it inevitable do you think in the next five ten years I don't think Scottish independence is inevitable but I think it's extremely plausible uh, that in itself is something that you couldn't have said ten years ago yeah um, you know we've already had one referendum where the pro-independence side came from a long way behind to at one point looking like they were going to actually win it and yes so losing by just over 10 percentage points. You know, since then, we've seen in the polls um, the pro-independent side maintaining a rating of around you know, 44 45%, roughly what they got in the, in the last referendum. So they will be starting any second independence referendum from a much higher point than they did yeah. last time. Now, you could say, well, OK, that maybe means that all the easy conversions have, have already, you know, they're already in the, in the yes side um, and those last 5 or 6% would be the hard ones, and that may well be true. But I mean, the big thing, I think, which may well push things in the direction of a second referendum and independence is Brexit. Mm. You know, Scotland, between 2014 and 2016, was asked to vote about its membership of two unions. It voted to stay in both of them. Yeah. Now it's being told, in effect, that at most you can stay in one of those. And, of course, Scotland voted for continued membership of the EU more emphatically than it voted for continuing membership of the UK. Yes. Moreover, if we look at the way Brexit is being handled, I mean, not only the Welsh governments are largely finding that their preferences and priorities are being ignored by the UK government, but even the Scottish government, which has a direct mandate to oppose Brexit, um, has been extremely unhappy by the way the UK government has been handling things and... You know, incorporating uh, Scottish views and preferences about how things should be done. That's both in the negotiations with the EU and also in the internal politics within the, within the UK. Um, 
unless there are major changes to the current draft EU withdrawal bill, there is going to be, in the next few months, a very major political row between the devolved governments in both Wales and Scotland and the UK government. And if the UK government is seen to be imposing on the devolved institutions a Brexit settlement that they're really unhappy with, that in consequence strips those devolved institutions of significant powers in areas that were always understood to be devolved, then I think you create a very good pretext for the SNP looking at another independence referendum and having very good arguments to begin that campaign with. With both the campaign for Scottish independence and the campaign to keep us in the UK, what both sides say is that actually older people voted to leave the EU and older people voted to stay in the UK. And once that generation dies out, well, then that's easy. You know, we just wait 10 years, they're all dead. <laughs> and you know, we get to rejoin the EU, get to, get to uh, you know, leave the UK. Is it just that that generation is the last bastion? And, and obviously that ignores that people have crossed the generations voted various ways. Yeah. Is it just that that generation is the last bastion of that sort of politics? Or is it that as people get older, their perspective changes? That's a really key social science question, uh, which is driving quite a lot of research at the moment. Between, yeah, Is what's going on a genuine generational difference? Or is it what social scientists would call a life cycle effect, yes. at least in part, whereby people perhaps become more politically conservative in some ways over the course of their life? And on that apparently obscure, abstruse social science technological issue may depend a great deal about the future of the UK. Whether it at some point you know, reverses the decision to Brexit, or whether Scotland uh, remains part of the UK as we know it. Um, certainly people who favour Scottish independence um, will be hoping that what we're seeing are genuine generational differences, that generations who grew up in the years after World War II when Britain and Britishness were perhaps at the peak of their prestige, as they gradually die out of the population, as younger people who have, for instance, always known a Scottish parliament and devolution, you know, for whom the idea of Scottish self-government is in no sense is alien or bizarre, mm. as they come into the electorate in increasing numbers, that there will be an inevitable tide towards independence. Um, I, I suspect, and I don't want to sound too wishy-washy on this, I suspect we're actually see elements of both generational and life cycle effects going yeah. on why this is so difficult to study. And you can never um, take voter behaviour for granted, Yeah, as the last few years have proven. In, in, indeed, and as you know, somebody who occasionally does uh, media punditry, it's felt to me at times in the last few years as if I might as well just go into studios and predict the craziest thing <laughs> I could possibly imagine. You'd have been right! <laughs> that's as likely to come right as anything else. Um... <laughs> So, uh, yeah, you, you heard it here first, Matt. That, you know, there's, there's going to be a coup in the UK before the end of the year. Prince Charles will become absolute dictator. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it, things as unlikely as that it seems, have been happening in, in some established democracies, in, including the UK. Well, indeed. indeed. Um, I, I, I so, you know, something like Scottish independence that yeah. 20 years ago would have seemed extraordinarily unlikely to happen in the lifetimes of most people is now a very realistic prospect. I think you know, Brexit may well provide, as I said, the pretext for another referendum, and it provides Scottish nationalists and their allies with very strong arguments. You know, why should Scotland be dragged out of the European Union when it has very clearly, almost two to one, voted to stay within it? Um, and, you know, I know personally one or two people who were against independence in 2014 but who have changed their mind partly because of, of the Brexit issue. Now, there will be, of course, some people who voted yes, who also voted leave, who might go the other way because of Brexit. But I think Brexit does make it significantly more likely mm. than it otherwise would have been that at some point in the next, say, 10 years, Scotland will decide to leave the UK. We talked about predictions there, and uh, this show's been going for a long time, predominantly talking to politicians who share your frustration at how volatile the world has become and how unpredictable it is. As a professor of political science, do you think you have an extra perspective on this stuff? Are you able to take a, a broader view, a, a sort of a higher view, perhaps, of the forces affecting the world, or are you just as baffled as the rest of us? 
quite often in the last years I have I have been baffled. I mean, frankly, I, I did expect Scotland to vote to stay within the UK. I got that one right. But um, I didn't expect a Conservative majority in 2015. I didn't expect a Leave vote in 2016. I didn't expect Trump to win in 2016 <laughs> yeah, yeah. either. Uh, and at the start of the 2017 election campaign, like everyone, I think, I thought the Tories were going to win this very, very big indeed. Mm. And of course, none of those things actually happened. At the same time, um, well, in, in my spare time, I'm something of a horse racing fan. And so about 15 years ago, I set up an account with Betfair. What I found actually in the years since I set up that account is it's easier to make money betting on politics than it is betting on horses. Why is on, that? Because on politics, too many people bet on what they want to happen. They're led by their emotions, whereas on horses, people overwhelmingly bet on what they think are you know, the hard realities. Um, and I suppose what you try to train yourself to do as somebody who studies this stuff professionally for a living is to put your own personal feelings to one side, at least when you try to make judgments about the strength of evidence on on matters and, and where the evidence is pointing you. Of course, that is difficult. You know, none of us lives outside of a community, outside of the politics of this time. We're all part of it in some way. Even somebody like me who hasn't been a political party member for 24 years and has no intention of ever again being a political party Which member. Which party was it? At the height of my student radicalism, <laughs> I was briefly a Liberal Democrat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I going to say communist. <laughs> See, that's, but isn't that interesting um, that Dems don't feel radical anymore? That would... And, um, I mean, I realised within a few months that I was not cut out to be a party person um, and have never since even contemplated joining a political party. I've, I've voted for five different political parties in my time, but none of them should covet my vote because I am the electoral kiss of death. I've never voted for a successful general election candidate, <laughs> ever. And I've lived in seats won by Labour, Conservative, Lib Dems and Plaid Cymru, and I've never voted for the winner. <laughs> wow. Um, so but, what are you then? If, if Mondeo Man was <laughs> was the sort of uh, the mid-90s buzz phrase, how, how do you, what, what phrase would you give? Oh, Well, as, as I said, a person, mosaic personally, I, I, I am the electoral kiss of death. Yeah. Yeah, I am... Uh, person coming along with in, in the black shroud with the sabre. <laughs> the but, Reaper. Um, but I, I think one thing that maybe academics can contribute or one little nugget of wisdom is well, see, when those of us who are interested in politics, you know, we tend to focus a great deal on, on the here and now and what's going on. Uh, and say like when a politician is in difficulties, like a prime minister is in difficulties or a government is struggling, say, oh, you know, they can't possibly survive this. Hmm. Like, things can't go on like this. Forever. Um, a really useful concept, I think, to remember from from, from basic uh, statistics is base rates. What's the base rate probability? You know, leaving out all the the detail of of the current situation. Yeah. You know, how many people in this situation, for instance, survive, or how many are kicked out? How many governments survive, or whatever? Um, let me give you a couple of examples. People look at Donald Trump. You know, end of his first year in office. Approval rating down to you know the lowest ever for a first-term president. People say, "Oh, well, he, he couldn't possibly win re-election." Yeah. Well, of the last seven people to be elected president of the United States, five of them have gone on to win a second term. Yeah. You know, the base rate probability: most people elected to be president of the United States win a second term. Another instance: um, Theresa May has lots of problems. People say, "Oh." You know, surely she couldn't survive as prime minister. She's finished. She's she's got to go soon. Well, actually, it's pretty rare for politicians to be pushed out of office mm. against their will. I mean, we can think of the examples. You know, Margaret Thatcher, for instance, in nineteen ninety, yeah. after she'd been there for a very very so, long yeah. time. Well, nearly. Um, you know, it, it, again, it's not very common. You know, Gordon Brown spent nearly his entire prime ministership in crisis, <laughs> yet he was still there yeah. until until electoral defeat in twenty ten. Um, and even so, then, almost yeah. managed to make it work. Yes, and similarly, the current situation: a government without a parliamentary majority and with difficult um, issues, most obviously Brexit on the horizon. People say, "Well, yeah, the government won't be able to last for its full five years." They'll have to go for an early election. And you know, aside from the fact that currently there's no obvious political incentive for them to go for an early election, again, just look at what's happened in the past. John Major's government. Yeah. You know, all sorts of internal divisions, internal problems, lost its parliamentary majority, still survived its full term. Sure. Even the Labour government in the 1970s spent, again, almost its entire 
parliamentary term without a majority, yes. all sorts of desperate problems, both internally in the party and facing the country, with, with the economy, still saw at almost its full term. Um, you know, governments are not brought down at all regularly. Prime ministers are not ousted from office very often. Presidents who win election tend to win re-election. Yeah. You know, if we can sort of try and think past the immediate hubbub around all the terrible things that are happening to this person or this government, the base rate probability is that most of them get re-elected, most of them survive. And that's maybe sort of one little thing, idea that people can try and keep at the back yes. of their minds when they're thinking about all of the stuff that's going on from day to day. In a sense, you're like a long-range weather forecaster. <laughs> where you're yeah, and we know how accurate long-range yeah, weather forecasts yeah, tend to be. You're not saying it's going to rain next Monday, but you're saying, actually, you could almost try and predict with probability, mm. with a heck of a lot of judgment and expertise, five years, mm. ten years. Well, I suppose, yeah, there's the difference between maybe being a meteorologist who's trying to predict what the weather's going to do next week or something and a climatologist who's looking at the longer-term changes in climate. And one of the things that academics try to do is to you know, see the bigger picture, see the longer-term trends or see you know, the multinational trends. Yes. So, you know, we talk, for instance, about um, issues going on in British politics today. One of the thing, contributions that academics can make is say, well, actually, some of the things that we're seeing here have quite a lot in common with things that are going on in other major established democracies. So, for instance, the problems with that have faced moderate centre-left um, political projects um, in the vast majority of the democratic world in in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, you know, we, we, we look at the Labour Party, what's going on with Corbynism. I mean, the main thing that's unusual about what's happened with the Labour Party is simply that the alternative to the sort of traditional mainstream centre-left has come within that party yes. and sort of taking over that party rather than coming as an alternative to that party, as we see for most obviously in the cases, for instance, of um, Sarita and Podemos in, um, in Greece and Spain, yes. or as we see, say, we, you know, Bernie Sanders, um, his, his candidacy in the United States. And what's been unusual about Labour is how this has been overwhelmingly internal within the party rather than external to it. What we're seeing in many uh, established democracies is the mainstream centre-left parties doing really historically badly. France, the presidential election last year, the, the mainstream ca can, you know, the candidate of the Parti Socialiste winning like 5% of the vote, mm. not even coming close to making the second round. The most recent German election, the SPD, at an all-time post-war low and now struggling to poll in more than the mid-teens. You know, this is a party that used to poll regularly in the 40s, close, sometimes close to 50% of the vote. They would have got you know, high you know, 30s or you know, 40s percentage of the vote in lots of post-war German general elections. Now, down at the sort of ratings we might associate typically with you know, the sort of pre-Nick Clegg crash Liberal Democrats. Um, and, and if we go and look at a lot of other mainstream centre-left parties, we're seeing these sorts of problems as well. Um, you know, the once all-conquering Swedish Social Democrats, for instance, again, looking like rather a shadow of their former selves. And, so one of the things that academics can do is try and look at the data systematically and say, for instance, that it's not just us and try to understand some of the broader things behind that. Similarly, we can also try and look at the broader historical perspective. And that's one of the things, obviously, I'm trying to do in, in the new book, talking about you know, the fragmentation of British party politics. You know, what was a more unified British party politics in the past? When did it start to fragment? And then what might be the long-term consequences if it continues to do so? When you get those global trends, is that as a result of a more globalised world of sharing of information, which spreads ideas in a way that... Um, I mean, ideas have been spread long before the internet. Revolutionary Europe and things like that can, can trigger uh, almost solidarity revolutions in other countries. The area we're living in now, is it purely just about living in a, in a smaller world because of information? Or what are the other pressures driving that? Well, I suppose academics would talk about the ideational and the material. You know, the ideational would be just, just ideas, you know, the spread of ideas, the spread of concepts, some of which, of course, can happen very fast because of social media, but uh, more generally can be through the dissemination of deeper intellectual notions, interpretations of for instance, you know, how we solve the problems of the global economy, how we respond to them. 
But as well as just ideas, I think common trends can happen because of just common material circumstances that people mm. in an awful lot of established democracies find, for instance, that mainstream political parties are just not delivering for them. Um, that in particular, a lot of them are finding that in times of austerity, where there's not a great deal of public money to spend, if the mainstream centre-left parties are finding it really difficult to convince those people they have convi- you know, sensible, coherent, convincing answers to their problems. Those, a lot of those centre-left parties are also struggling to convince people that they have or would be willing to deliver on um, their concerns about issues like immigration. And I think we're also seeing a lot of those countries... The sort of the social basis that's underpinned many of those mainstream centre-left parties of trade union movements is also breaking down. Um, we see that to some degree in, in the UK, but we see that in many other countries, including Germany, one of the things that's undermining the SPD. We see it in France, one of the things that's undermined the Parti Socialiste. Um, you know, these sort of basic changes in the material circumstances of people's lives, mm. the sorts of jobs they have, whether they're members of unions that connect them to mainstream centre-left political parties, these sorts of common elements of people's daily lived experience in all sorts of different countries you know, are, are fairly similar and push people in, in fairly similar directions. So, I mean, people talked about you know, like the rise of um, you know, alt-right or, or radical right movements in various different different countries. And, you know, the book that my friends... Um, Rob Ford and Matt Goodwin wrote about UKIP some years ago was pointing out that this wasn't a wholly isolated instance. They were part of you know one of the radical right movements of which you can see numerous other examples. Indeed, in some respects, what had been strange about the UK was not that UKIP rose, but it took us so long to get a <laughs> radical right party like that yeah. of significant size. So you can, you can spot these global trends. The big question, obviously, is then what happens next? Where does this all go? What do you think is next for, for global politics or politics, politics in the UK? What are the sort of forces? Obviously, Brexit is a dominant issue. But what are the sort of forces that are going to affect the next five or ten, maybe 20 years in, in our politics? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Brexit is, is clearly the, the dominant issue at the moment. I mean, with the possible exception of decolonisation, which was spread over a significant period of time, I think Brexit is well, certainly the biggest, most complicated, most difficult thing that the UK as a state has tried to do since he fought Hitler. I mean, it, it's that big yes. thing, and it, it's consuming a huge amount of government energy and political attention, and will likely continue to do so for at least the next year, until um, we have some greater idea of, of what is happening. Um, I mean, the other major things that are going on are you know, I mean, always you know, trends in the global economy uh, affect people, and you know, if we see the global economy doing relatively well, then that will, generally speaking, be fairly good news for those parties which are in power, which are associated with the policies which are delivering good economic times. But you know, if that growth is not well distributed, if lots of people aren't, don't see themselves as benefiting it, benefiting from it, then actually, of course, that can lead to a lead to a backlash. Um, so I think you know that will clearly be a major element of global politics in the next 5, 10, 15 years. I think a, a bigger issue um, which sort of bubbling underneath the surface more generally though is across a great number of countries um, including the UK to some degree is sort of you know, crisis of faith in established democracy and ways yes. of doing things. We've seen in an awful lot of countries a decline of faith in established political parties seen, for instance, in declining levels of party identification and support, a decline of faith in established ways of doing politics uh, in established political institutions. And, you know, those have different manifestations in particular contexts, but you know, there is a fairly common context, you know, fairly common sort of global context there. And when people you know, lose faith in the ways in which politics have been done and institutions through which they have been done, then they're more willing to consider voting for hitherto unconsidered alternatives. Mm. Now, that can be Scottish independence. That can be a far-right or a far-left political party or candidate. That can be, as in the case of France, an independent centrist like Emmanuel Macron. Um, But it can also mean 
people being far more willing to push for referendums to decide things. You know, the idea of politicians know best, we should elect representatives and give it the power mm. to sit to those wise people, I think is much weaker in many established democracies than it used to be. And the idea of letting the people decide themselves in referendums is much stronger. So we're likely to see greater use of referendums in, in more uh, established democracies. Um, but we're also, unless you know, mainstream centre-right, centre-left parties are able to rebuild the social bases of their support, um, rebuild sort of the ties of affection and loyalty that many people once had to them, we're likely to see um, you know, increasing willingness of people to to look for previously sort of radical or what would have hitherto been considered wacky political options. Is, is there actually, as well as the, the, the eccentricity that goes with that in terms of the wackiness, is there an existential threat to democracy itself? I think people in all the, willingly choose autocracy? I think in all the time that I've been doing this, and I've been an academic now for 20 years and previous that uh, studying politics for some years, I've never felt more strongly than I do now that the, the foundations that underpin representative democracy in many you know, countries where it's been in place for a long time are weak. I wouldn't quite say that they're crumbling yet, but they're weak and weakened. Um, there are, of course, significant forces in the globe who don't really like the idea of representative democracy mm. as well. I mean, we know, of course, about um, Russia, which was, of course, delighted by the Brexit vote um, and you know, very much wants to undermine liberal democracy. Um, but also, probably more importantly, I think in the longer term, um, is China, which is, you know, the largest country in the world in terms of population, but at some point likely become the largest country in the world in terms of size of economy. Um, and although it's some way from being the largest military power and the most dominant military power in the world, is it, going to be a major global influence in the coming decades. And the Chinese model of government is not one of liberal democracy. And they're not particularly favourable to the idea of liberal democracy. And so what it seems at the moment if you know, the Chinese are certainly doing less to actively try to undermine it than, say, the Russian government is. But, you know, this, this, is, this is not a centre of economic and political power from which goodwill to liberal democracy naturally flows. So if we're gonna if we're gonna borrow the long range weather analogy, it's gonna rain for ten years, then we're gonna be hit by some sort of meteorite shower. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna be in flames. Well, um, I'm I'm not sure I, I quite say that, but I'd say you should certainly pack an umbrella <laughs> uh, and a coat. Uh, and maybe having your car sort of your survival gear. <laughs> meteorite repellent uh, umbrella on, 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 on this analogy, yeah. Um just because democracy has been established in the UK for many decades, there were many decades before that when we didn't have yeah. the sort of democracy we recognise today, and it's not inevitable that it continues. Well, what a cheery note to end. <laughs> um, <laughs> Professor Roger Scully, it's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like we're, not just myself, but every one of the listeners to this show will be immeasurably intellectually improved as a result of the uh, of the last hour in your book. The End of British Party Politics is out next month. I was very lucky to be able to read a copy in it. It's absolutely superb. And uh, we've covered only a fraction of it in today's conversation, but it's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much, Thank Matt. You. It's, been, it's been fun. Thank you. Well, there you go, Professor Roger Scully. What an amazing conversation. It obviously ended on quite a, quite a morbid note. But a lot of it, actually, if you do... The point that he made about just stepping back and looking at the likelihood and the probability of certain things happening, it doesn't make them absolutely certain, but it does help you get a longer view of what's happening. And he's absolutely brilliant. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Roger underscore Scully. That's S-C-U-L-L-Y. When I tweet this out, I'll, 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 um, I'll put his Twitter up there. You can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. And you can get tickets to all my live shows. Glasgow on the 25th of March, Edinburgh on the 27th of March. 
Bristol on the 29th of March and all the others uh, on my website, mattford.com live. But what a phenomenal conversation that was. And it was, as with so many of them, an hour just absolutely flew by and I couldn't believe... Uh, that it was done. He certainly couldn't believe that we've, we've reached now when we had. But when you talk to someone as interesting as that, I sort of think sometimes these should be two hours long, but maybe two hours would be too much. I can hear people saying no now and you're not even in the room, so I can I, I fully appreciate that maybe two hours would be too much. But why leave it to an hour? Well, because people would stop listening. I do understand why, but he was just absolutely great. Uh, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Please do leave a review on iTunes. Um... I'm very late to understanding how iTunes works and how uh, podcasts are promoted on there. So if you do enjoy the show, it's just a small way in which you can you can pay me back. Uh, so leave us a review on iTunes. Do share the link with other people. Put it on your Facebook and other social media. That really helps other people find it. But just thank you for downloading it. I will see you in a week. And this show uh, was produced by Sarah Bishop. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.